There we go. Let's go ahead and uh, uh, pray uh, one more time, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for um, a time that we get to gather together, Lord, and we pray that your Spirit would be among us. Lord, we are needful to be taught of you, needful to have right understanding. And Lord, we ask that now as we consider this righteousness that we are to hunger and thirst for, Lord, would you help us to examine ourselves, uh, to give us insight, to help us to see have we properly hungered and thirsted for the, the, the righteousness that is needful? And do we continue to hunger and thirst? Father, would you be glorified uh, today? In your name, amen. amen. All right, I'm just trying to make this a little bit bigger. All right, so before us today, let's go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 5. We are now on this fourth beatitude. And here we read, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And so what we have here is a condition, if you will, or a characteristic that is this righteousness that is absolutely essential for anyone to truly be blessed. But really, as we've considered, all of these beatitudes are essential, right? You don't get to this hungering and thirsting for righteousness, right, unless you have first been made poor in spirit. And even though you've been made poor in spirit, you don't get to this hunger and thirst for righteousness unless you've truly mourned your condition, right? So uh, hopefully by God's grace, we have all come to this state of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Um, But what type of righteousness is in view here? Is it a works-based righteousness? No, some would make the claim that there is, right? They would say, oh, like, even all of these Beatitudes are works-based in some sense. But how, from the context, do we know that this is not works-based? Right, we know what Paul says, right? That That it's not works-based. But from this context, we know it's not works-based. How? That's right. That's where we start. So if we're poor in spirit, we've been made to see that there's no righteousness in us, there's no good in us, that we are spiritually needy. And so now, instead of looking inside ourselves like these last three Beatitudes have had us do, we now turn outside ourselves and look to another for righteousness. And so what I want to do, the way I kind of want to break this beatitude down is as follows. I want to look at this language of hunger and thirst and just what it conveys, kind of the definition and the imagery that's there, uh, the nature of this hunger and thirst. After, uh, we'll look at like a, I guess, a false type of righteousness or a righteousness that is to be exceeded or surpassed. And then finally, we'll look at the true righteousness that is to be hunger and thirsted after. And then finally, the blessing. So this hunger and thirst, right? First up, what is this hunger and thirst? These are probably terms, right, we're all familiar with. These are terms, she definitely knows what hunger and thirst is, I assure you. Um, 
we're familiar with them. And in some cases, right, we know what hunger and thirst is. We feel it maybe day to day, right, in the sense that we're hungry for lunch or we're hungry for dinner or we're thirsty, right? But what is truly conveyed here is not some casual hunger and thirst. It's not this hunger and thirst where you thirst for your lunch or you hunger for your lunch and then maybe you don't get around to eating lunch and the hunger, hunger kind of subsides, right? And then you're busy and you kind of forget about it. This is a hunger and thirst that um, I believe conveys the idea of desperation. That you eat or drink or you die. And this same idea is here. You hunger and thirst for true righteousness or you have no life. You hunger and thirst for true righteousness or you have no salvation. And so it conveys this idea, this deep longing, um, a strong desire, an intense longing. Even pain can be associated with you, if you will, with like, you know, that, that hunger and thirst where you've gone so long with no food, no drink. There's probably many of us that maybe haven't even experienced that type of hunger. Um, where there's nothing that satisfies it unless food is placed in front of you. This type of hunger and thirst that we should have should be there's nothing that satisfies unless we see Christ. And so we see this, this same language elsewhere in Scripture, right? If we look at Psalm 42, Psalm 42, David uses this language in some sense where he says, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Right? And so you get this idea of this deer panting for the water brooks. And that that is how he's conveying his thirst for, his, for, for the Lord. His soul yearns for the Lord. Or Isaiah 55, verses 1 and 2 says, Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you have no money... And you who have no money, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. How do you do that? Right? That is completely, we, we buy food with money. And Christ is saying, come and drink, come and eat, come and buy, but no money. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. And this should immediately have us be thinking of Revelation 22, right? Revelation 22 um, says this in verse 17, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. And so, is it? 21.6 as well. <laughs> And that's key, right? We bring nothing to the table. But he offers us to come, drink, come, eat. Come, buy of him, but with nothing. But more closely to our passage, let's look at Matthew 6.33. We see this same idea conveyed here. Here. 
Here we read, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. So notice the language, right? What is conveyed by the word seek? Intentional, a pursuit, like an earnest looking, not a casual, oh, I'm just going to, you know, kind of search around, right? This is intentional, diligent. And then it adds the word first to, in a sense, kind of ratchet up the emphasis. Out of all these things that you can worry about and search for, seek first of primary importance. Not necessarily before all these things, like order of time necessarily, but primary importance is seeking first the kingdom of God, discussion for another time, and his righteousness. So it's not the cares and concerns of this life, the the worries of this world that should be our primary focus. What we should be focused on is where do we ultimately stand? And so that leads us to what is the nature of this hunger and thirsting? And we have to understand that this nature is spiritual, right? It has to be. All of these beatitudes we've been talking about have a spiritual emphasis. It is not a hungering after the things of this world, the possessions of this life, the things that make us feel comfortable here, but it's hungering after what um, we need to, to have true life. This language of hunger and thirst implies by necessity that it is not in us. If it was in us, we wouldn't be hungering and thirsting. But it's something outside of us and something that must be given to us. Even that nature, it's like they will be satisfied. It's given to us. They will be. It'll be done to them. And so it's a hungering and thirsting for righteousness, ultimately his righteousness like we just read about, and a life of righteousness. And we'll get into how that kind of breaks down, his righteousness and a life of righteousness. So we must certainly seek for this this spiritual righteousness that sustains for the life to come, right? Christ even tells them in John, John 6, right? Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you. See, he's saying, come and eat of that which will last for the life to come. Okay, so the righteousness that is to be, I guess I'll just title it, Righteousness Surpassed. So before going into what we are specifically to hunger for, I want to look at what is it, or righteousness maybe that is to be avoided, righteousness that is to be exceeded. And so if you will, please turn with me, I guess you don't really maybe even have to turn, but Matthew 5.20. It's that of Pharisaical righteousness. Here we read this. It says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. 
So notice it doesn't necessarily say that they're unrighteous, right? Um, so what is the righteousness that is to be surpassed? What does it mean that our righteousness has to surpass or exceed theirs? Anything that man can achieve? Yeah. Yep. Outward, external, that's true. I'll start with yours, and I'll lump it under the heading of self-righteousness. The Pharisees had a self-righteousness, right? They trusted in themselves. They thought they were good. They were not poor in spirit, right? We looked at this last time when we went through poor in spirit, right? Luke 18 with the the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. They believed, right? They trusted in themselves that they could be found righteous. And so what do we see the Pharisee doing? Boasting, right? I thank you that I'm not like others, right? But I do this and I do that and I do this, right? And they were pleased with themselves, So self-righteousness, we'll see, is one that is to be surpassed, and we'll discuss that in a little bit, is how is this surpassed? Next, before we get to the external righteousness, is their righteousness was not, um, I guess you would say, guided by Scripture. It was, um, in a sense, in many ways, uh, a man man-made uh, tradition or man-made righteousness that they often look to. The, what they promoted was not entirely based on Scripture. Now, I use that word entirely because we do read, right, in Matthew 23, 3, Christ says, Therefore, all that they, they being the scribes and Pharisees, tell you, do and observe. Right? But do not do according to the, their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. Right? So it's as if they taught the law properly, but they clearly did not observe the law. Right? And so then what we see, if we turn, you can turn, Matthew 15, 3 through 9, if somebody wants to, uh, to read that. 15, 3 through 9. Okay. He answered them, So what do we see from this passage about their righteousness? It was all visual. All visual? Yeah, it was all whatever they perceived. That's right. And that's often what we see is people will make up for themselves a righteousness or or a way that they can be made right with God that is not in line with Scripture. And so we must be sure that whatever we deem as being right being pleasing to God is guided by Scripture. 
right? I mean, what did they do? It says they transgressed the commandment, so they sinned against God in order to follow their tradition. They made the word of God void in a sense. And by doing so, obviously, you know, it says you, you, you convert people and you make them twice the sons of hell that you are. They prohibit them from coming in. And their worship, therefore, was vain. They taught as doctrine the precepts of men, not Scripture as doctrine. And so we must remember righteousness is not defined by our emotions, our feelings, our experiences. Righteousness must be guided by Scripture. And then finally, the third one is, it was mere external righteousness. Let's go ahead um, and turn over to Matthew 23. And then we'll look at verse 25. But what we see is they had a righteousness that conformed outwardly to the standard, so to say, but not one that was driven by inward change. Somebody like to read verse 25? Okay. Mm-hmm. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self mm. So notice the description here. Outside of the cup, clean. Outside of the dish, clean. Inwardly, full of robbery and self-indulgence. Outwardly, appears as if there's no issues inwardly tons of issues right now look down at verse 27 and 28 somebody like to read that Even so, you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Mm. So again, the language outwardly, whitewashed tombs. Inwardly, full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. And then he's very clear on his description of them in, the, in verse 28, right? Outwardly appearing righteous. Inwardly, just hypocrisy. All lawlessness. No true change, essentially. There are many, um, as I've thought through this, I know that this isn't a, um, isn't a sermon, but there are many in the church who grew up in the church or who have attended church for many years that become comfortable with how they're supposed to act, what they're supposed to do, when they're supposed to attend, and so what ends up happening is, is there's a self-righteousness that potentially develops. There's an external righteousness. And oftentimes they try to justify themselves based on feelings and emotion. And this is the righteousness here that needs to be surpassed. It needs to be exceeded. And so the question is, how do we exceed that righteousness? 
So I'll just carry this over here to number three. Um, uh, I'll say righteousness to be hungered for. Righteousness to be hungered for. So based on what we looked at, we know it's not self-righteousness, we know it's not external righteousness, and we know it's not man-made tradition that should guide us, right? So first and foremost, what is the righteousness that we should hunger and thirst for? That's right, it's alien, right? What did you say? That's right, an alien righteousness, um, a legal righteousness, right? So under here you'd say, yes, it's alien, right? It's not a righteousness that is of our own. It's a righteousness that is outside of us. And we know this, right? The one who has come to this point understands this because they've been made poor in spirit. And so they readily agree with Paul that says there's none righteous, no, not one. And so they no longer look inwardly. They look outward to Christ. Well, the pursuit of holiness, right? And then I think us ultimately being holy for all of eternity would be then, you know, righteousness dwelling forever, right? Um, and we'll get to that in this next, the, the next aspect of what we're to hunger and thirst for. Because that, that, the fact that you connected like holiness with it, I think holiness, after you get past this legal righteousness, right? And you've been made right positionally with God, that holiness and righteousness are so closely intertwined with each other. So we need one, right? If we think of our condition, we need one who could perfectly obey, perfectly keep, and fulfill the covenant of works. Right? Salvation, in a sense, is of works when it's works done by Christ, and then it's of grace because of his work. Therefore, this, the second Adam came to accomplish and failed what the first Adam was, uh, did not do. Uh, that is that Christ willingly subjected himself to this covenant, to this work that the Father gave him to do. Right? And this work is key. What is the work? How could we summarize that work? What's that? Right. I, I have, redemption is, is, I guess, a good way to summarize it too, but I'm going for this aspect of essentially like what you said. If we were to summarize it, it would be, um, you know, I'd say, fulfill all righteousness. This would be a good summary of what Christ needed to do. This is one work, right? But we often see this one work like break out into two distinctions. Okay? One work, but how was it done? There was an active obedience. Anybody know the other one? And a passive obedience. What does passive obedience relate to? 
That's right. His, ultimately, his, his death, right? His willingness to lay his life down, it wasn't taken from him. He willingly gave himself as a sacrifice, right? Right. And he's willingly taking it. There's, you know, there's no fighting, right? You see in the garden, he submitted himself to his father's will. And he, his life wasn't taken from him as if somebody tried to take our life, we would fight against it. He willingly underwent that and, and, and gave himself as a sacrifice. That's what he could do versus what we don't Right. Yeah, he allowed those things, right? Um, they could only do what he allowed in that sense. Right. Right. Yep. You say that's more on the line of not necessarily what they did to him, but what God did to him. Right. Yeah, I think a lot of it. That's right. I mean. What he underwent when he went to the cross in the form of the beatings and so forth was certainly man's vengeance, right? Man's, you know, punishment upon him. But what would be in line would be the fact that he was a sin bearer, right? This here, absolutely essential, right? Nobody would argue that. This is absolutely essential. But what is the active obedience of Christ? That's right. So we'd say, you know, fulfillment. Fulfillment of law. Every jot and tittle, right? There's not one thing like left undone that needed to be accomplished. Christ fulfilled it all. And this is absolutely essential, right? So notice here between these, the work that was given to him to do wasn't a go down and just die, you know, and and, and die for their sins. What would that have resulted in if he had done that? A lack of righteousness. Right, we'd be guilt-free in in some sense as far as our sins being removed, but we'd have no righteousness, right? And so there was a need for Christ to fulfill all the law to fulfill all righteousness. And this quote from Sproul says this. He says, Jesus not only had to die for our sins, right? That's the passive obedience. But he had to live for our righteousness. So notice, this is really, if you look at this, all of this stuff here, this is one work. One work that contains both active and passive obedience, so that those who repent and believe, what? They become the righteousness of God in Him. In Christ, we become the righteousness of God. And so what we see is we know the verse in 2 Corinthians 5, we see that great transaction, right, where there's this double imputation that takes place, where because of what He has done, Right? Willingly laying himself down, his righteousness is put to our account and he takes our sin upon himself. 
So this is where it starts. This is the foundational righteousness that we need to hunger and thirst for. It starts here. That's right. That's right. So how do we surpass the self-righteousness of the Pharisees? It's through the righteousness of Christ. That is how, in that sense, that the righteousness surpasses that. They had a righteousness that really meant nothing, that could do nothing for them. And so then that leads us then to the next uh, righteousness that we're to hunger and thirst for. Anybody have an idea what it is? Practical? That's a good way to put it. I use the word moral, but practical righteousness I like. Um, Right, it's not... It's not enough. We've talked about this before when I went through um, teaching on the sonship of God. But it's not enough to merely be made in right standing with God and then go and continue to live however we want. Um, there is a need, right? This is, this is the foundation, but it should then lead to a pursuit of practical righteousness. Righteousness that shows itself forth in how we live every day. So it's, right, it's not like, okay, like you've been made right, now go do what you want. It's not how it works. Let me make, let me, we're going to get there, okay? Let me make the point this way. Is the law done away with? What's that? That's right, yes and no, right? Yes, how is it done away with? That's right. Right, we read in Romans 10:4, Christ is the end of the law for what? Righteousness. Right, for all who believe. But in another sense, the law has not passed away, right? That we should still seek to live according to the law, not for salvation, not to be made right, but because we have been made right. Yeah. Which one? Romans 10, Romans 10, 4. Yeah. And Romans 3, 31, we have, do we overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Mm. You know, so you have that That's right. It's, it's not that there's now no law because there's grace, right? We've been changed um, to where uh, we desire to walk as we ought to walk, right? Christ himself says, right? If we love him, we will what? Right. He doesn't say, if you love me and you've been made righteous, like, you're going to go, right? We're going to keep his commandments. So therefore, now that we've been set free from our bondage to sin, we are to live to righteousness. We see this conveyed in First uh, Peter, First Peter chapter 2, in verse 24. 
says, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. This, in a sense, can be considered a parallel verse to what we see described in Romans 6. If you look, um, not to get too deep into it, but the Greek construct of the sentence basically would be able to have it be rendered as such. Having died, right, now live to righteousness which is very much in line with what Paul says in Romans 6. So let's turn to Romans 6. I know I have you guys turning all over the place, but... Romans 6, um, really, we could read the whole chapter, but we won't. We'll start in verse 11. (laughs) Romans 6, verse 11 through 13. Is there somebody who would like to read that? Pastor Lynn? truly remarkable there's there's not clearer language as to what we should be doing how we should be living we are dead to sin sin is to no longer reign and then look at the comparison here between unrighteousness and then conversely righteousness one is to be completely done away with we're no longer to present ourselves in in the members as instruments of unrighteousness that would, that would imply or, or, or at least kind of lead toward thinking like we're not actively no longer allowing ourselves to be used for unrighteousness. But instead we should actively seek to have our members be instruments for righteousness. How we live should now be completely radically different than how we once were. And where should, this, where should this righteousness stem from? Look at verses 17 and 18, if somebody would like to read those two. 17 and 18. Landon? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And mm. having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Mm. So where did it start? That's right. In the heart. How does your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees? It's not merely external. It's driven from a change in your heart. There needs to be a fundamental shift from trusting in yourself, from merely conforming outwardly to trusting in Christ, and then now living practically righteous by His grace. Right? This is vastly different. And so, what does this look like on the day-to-day? What does this look like for our daily, our daily living? And so, as I said earlier with, with you, Juan, right? I think righteousness is akin to sanctification or that pursuit of holiness. They're so closely intertwined with each other. And so, I want to look at this aspect from a, um, a negative perspective or aspect. And then, secondly a positive perspective, I guess you could say. What does it mean to consider the negative aspect? What would that 
in a sense, mean? That's right. So how would this work itself out on our day-to-day? If we are uh, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, what would that look like negatively? That's right. Right. Self-denial, a mortification of sin, right? A fleeing, right? We read in um, 2 Timothy 2.2, right now, flee from youthful lusts, okay? Or Titus 2.11, right? Um, We are to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. We are to put off the old man. That's what it would look like negatively, that there is not just a hunger and thirst, right? It's, it's, it truly is a hunger and thirst to put off, to do away with. It's an active, um, I guess, activity. It's active activity, right? You do it, right? It's, you're putting those things off. But it's not only the negative. It's not only do away with those things. It's not only put those things aside, but there's a positive aspect to it, right? What is that positive aspect? Love. That's true, right? In the sense of uh, Colossians three, twelve through 14, right? There's all these things that we are to put on. So you put off and you put on. Living, walking by faith. And so in those same verses, 2 Timothy 2, Titus 2, we see the, the fleeing, we see the denying, but we also see what we're to pursue. Righteousness faith, love, and peace, right? We see that we're to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Now, so these are things that we must hunger and thirst for. And the question is, do we? Is it kind of like, well, as, you know, as the Spirit works, right? We'll see. There's an aspect in that, right? He needs to work in us. But there's an aspect where we need to be hungering and thirsting for those things. To do away with things, and then a hunger and thirsting for those things. But what I would say is this, while we do those things, right? While we hunger and thirst for this righteousness, we must always keep an eye to Christ. Right? So as to never think that this outworking of righteousness is our own doing but rather is always and forever a result of His work for us and His work in us. It always needs to be looking to Christ always. Even though it's a synergistic work, we understand that, right? It's not just sit idly by and hope, okay, the Lord changes us. We need to be actively doing these things. But it is still nonetheless because of what He's done for us and what He's done in us. He's imputed to us His righteousness and He's imparted to us by His Spirit the ability to now live righteously. And I'll wrap up, uh, I'll wrap up here with the blessing now. Um, I guess I'll erase some of this. The blessing. When, when does this satisfaction, right? It says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for they shall be satisfied. When does uh, this satisfaction take place? In some aspect, right? So that's true. What's that? That's right. So in one sense, it is immediate. How is it immediate? 
That's right. So the minute, right, the minute we look to Christ, right, what has happened? He's imputed to us his righteousness. He's taken our sin upon him. We're now justified. The barrier is broken down and we've been made right with God, right? So as a result now, he sees us as saints, not sinners, friends, not enemies, and as sons and daughters. That is immediate. Our whole position shifts from being enemies to being friends. Isn't that remarkable? Secondly, I think it's a continual satisfaction. I think that there is a daily hungering and thirsting and that there is a satisfaction that then is commensurate with that daily hungering and thirsting. That that as we hunger and thirst, as we seek to overcome sin, as we seek to mortify it and to daily walk righteously, there's a satisfaction that the more that we hunger and thirst, the more we are satisfied. And it's this ever-growing satisfaction that takes place. So long as we keep our eye on Christ. And finally, it's future, right? It's future. Second Peter 3.13 says this, But according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We pursue these things now. We've been made righteous in Christ. And then we will one day dwell in the new heavens and new earth where it is only righteousness that reigns. That is truly um, phenomenal what Christ has accomplished for us. And so it begins with Christ, it continues with Christ, and it ends with Christ. It is Anything that is in us is because of what he's done. Any questions or comments or anything to add? All right, you guys let me off too easy. Let's go, uh, let's go worship.